Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, our stories are about trying to blend in, both in and out of science. And not to get too abstract or philosophical about it all, but I feel like sometimes trying to fit in or blend in with a group of people is very much like a science experiment. You know, you have this hypothesis about how things are going to go, You try things out, some fail, some succeed, and then you draw some type of conclusion. Although, whenever I've tried to blend in somewhere, I've never had much success in my experimentation. Like one time, I thought because I watched Bend It Like Beckham, probably one too many times, I was going to become a soccer girl. All the cool girls at school played soccer, and so obviously I wanted to be a cool girl, so I decided I was going to try and fit in with them. And so I signed up for the school soccer team, and I was convinced I was going to be a natural at this game, mostly because I knew exactly what outfit I was going to wear, so this plan was flawless. Uh, But here's the thing. I have zero hand-eye coordination, or I guess in this instance, foot-eye coordination, and I also hate running. So the first time... A ball got passed to me. I panicked and completely whiffed it. Um, The rest of the game wasn't much better. Uh, The running part, not my thing. Um, But needless to say, after one game, I concluded that being a soccer girl was not it for me. And I quit the soccer team that very same day. Anyway, our first story is from Pardeep Singh. It was recorded at Caveat in New York City in August this year. The theme that night was Clash. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a special night. It's a beautiful summer evening. You know, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of the last time I saw my father. Um, when I last saw my father, it was a sweltering June afternoon in 2017. I was in a uh, courthouse in downtown Brooklyn with my mom. And uh, I remember seeing him about 30 people ahead, waiting in line to go through the metal detectors. 
And I ended up in that situation uh, after a phone call with my mom earlier that day where she casually informed me that she was on her way to see him to collect bad paid child support. And the tenor in her voice made it sound like that was a normal thing. It had, it, had, it had been a few years since I'd seen him before that. And every time I do, it feels like I'm standing in a silent tornado. Just the world spins around me. Everything becomes a blur. I don't know how to feel when I see my father. I become overwhelmed with emotions and questions. Does he look like me? Would he even recognize me? Do I hug him? Should he hug me? After all, what do you say to the man who abandoned your family, leaving your mom to work two part-time jobs and raise three kids in one of the poorest communities in Brooklyn, New York? What are you supposed to say? Hey? What's up, What's up dad? What's new? In that moment, I realized that that was the first time I had my parents together alone in a room with me since probably since I was a baby. And I was 26 at the time, and I'm 31 now. And uh, I, I, I didn't have the best role models for, for marriage. I'm open to it, sure. But like any early 30s millennial from New York, I find that more and more of my conversations are steering towards the topic of marriage. I wasn't thinking about this when I got cast for The Bachelor, though. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but there isn't a tell-all book or folder full of notes that can get you casted. There isn't a uh, Oz-type figure that has all the answers. Like any early 30s millennial from New York, I was swiping on dating apps. <laughs> and admittedly, I am a chronic unmatcher. Like, I swipe right on everybody. And then, after the matches come in, I match all the people I don't like in one motion. <laughs> so one day, I was uh, chilling in my bedroom, just swiping on these apps, and my phone goes off. It's a match. Take a look, she's pretty cute. She had the uh, obligatory photo by the ocean, a uh, group photo with friends. She was even into LARPing. And if you don't know what LARPing is, it's, <laughs> it's when you uh, dress up like a fantasy character and go into the woods and pretend like you live in the Middle Ages. Let's try it sometime. <laughs> and uh, but seriously though, she was fun, sarcastic, uh, up to date with modern satire. I was, I was digging it. So just before I ask her out, I see that uh, she was living in Miami. I wasn't planning on visiting Miami anytime soon. So my exit plan started to kick in. How do I politely exit this conversation without relying on the unmatch button? So I said, hey, uh, I think you're great, but uh, I don't plan on visiting Miami anytime soon, but I'm on Instagram, it's nice to meet you. And just before I closed the app, she's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm actually casting for The Bachelorette. I think she should definitely apply. The Bachelorette, like, like the show? And she said, yeah, and I know you're single because you're on this app. <laughs> Touche. And if you don't know what The Bachelor is, like, it's, I can't explain it in like less than 30 seconds. It's like trying to explain how you play Monopoly in less than 30 seconds. Just imagine your favorite uh, soap opera where if you like somebody, give them a flower. Like, just go with that for now. And, uh, my first reaction was, well, you know, this is bullshit. I've been around New York long enough to know that nothing is the way it seems at first. 
So uh, as a neuroscientist, I put my principal investigator skills on and started creeping on her LinkedIn. Turned out she was on a casting team. Though nervous and ambivalent, I was genuinely excited about the prospect of getting down on one knee. In a way, being on The Bachelor was my first foray to dating with the intent to marry. The feeling was analogous to you know, being a kid on your way to Six Flags or uh, counting down those last few seconds of your thermocycler during its run. <laughs> on the run-up to night one, the mood of my surroundings began to slowly change from the real world into the batch world, where everything had perfect romantic lighting, all of my clothes were wrinkle-free, and my skin and hair were just <laughs> perfect. But on the run-up to night one, more and more of my doubts started to creep in. Being in the batch world uh, also meant that uh, my life would now become public where America may see that I come from a broken family and been through poverty and struggle, that I have a funny name, and I had no idea how America would react to seeing someone like me presented on their screen as a viable romantic partner when there really hasn't been one like that before. Being in the batch world also meant that I've given tacit permission for anyone and everyone to overanalyze and pick apart everything I do say and wear uh, send me racist messages and break me down because I'm just so vulnerable for, for love. And I had to be all right with all that. How am I supposed to succeed on a show about marriage when I don't have any role models for what marriage is supposed to be about? In a way, hiring somebody to find me a spouse felt like a personal failure. Meant I didn't have the swag to do it on my own. But still... I went in with an open mind, hoping to tighten out with Michelle. For better or for worse, my talents for cultivating creeping doubts is only surpassed by my even greater talent of chopping them right above the root. So I put on my best suit, stepped out that limo into the 109 degree weather that is Palm Springs, with a new sense of confidence that I should care less about what people think about me and more about shining as an individual. And meeting Michelle for the first time on night one, it's uh, the first night where filming is, meeting her felt like I was standing in a silent tornado. The world spun around me. Everything became a blur. I was overwhelmed with emotions and questions. After all, what are you supposed to say to the person that you might be spending the rest of your life with? Hey, what's up? Well, actually, that's what you're supposed to say. Instead, I reference dopamine for some reason. <laughs> but those first few seconds with Michelle felt like hours. Like the way time slows down when you flex from a hot stove or when you count down the last 10 seconds before a new year. I felt every, every heartbeat and every breath that I took. And for a few moments, that silent tornado gave way to clarity and familiarity and implicit trust. When her eyes locked onto mine, it made me blind to everything else. I tuned out the glamour of being under a literal spotlight, the pitter-patter of producers around us, and gave way to a sense of 
a sense of ease that none of my creeping doubts mattered. And I wanted to I wanted to stand there all night. But like lightning, it's gone in a flash. I said my goodbyes and went to the mansion. Now I don't know what love at first sight is supposed to feel like. I mean, every every soulmate starts off as a perfect stranger, until one day that soulmate, that perfect that perfect stranger, loves you despite your imperfections, and that's the point. Stay together no matter what. And at the end of every episode, there's something called a rose ceremony, where lead hands out the flowers to all the people she likes. And in traditional bachelor fashion, all the men line up shoulder to shoulder, and they patiently wait for the lady to come to come through and hand out the flowers. And in that space, it's quiet, like being in a library. And one by one, Michelle calls her name. And she had this way of staring at you and locking eyes with you just before she calls your name and I had this feeling, this gut feeling that she would call mine. And she did. And the, the weight of being the first Indian American to ever get a rose on the bachelorette was overwhelming. Because it meant that that viable romantic partner that I hoped to see on my screen suddenly became me. So when that rose hit my chest, I became that role model that I so desperately needed. Thank you. That was Pardeep Singh. Pardeep Singh is a neuroscientist, podcaster, Brooklynite, and the first Indian American to ever get a rose on The Bachelorette. And for those of you in the Batch Nation, you can also catch Pardeep on Bachelor in Paradise this season. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. Our next New York show is this Monday, October 10th. If you're in town, make sure you don't miss the awesome lineup of storytellers we've got. You can check out storycollider.org shows for tickets and more information. We also have shows coming up in Vancouver, Western Massachusetts, L.A., Atlanta, and more this October. Again, storycollider.org shows for tickets and more info. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclatter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. Also, if you're tired of listening to ads on this podcast, you can also sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our second story is from Tiago Arzua. It was also recorded in August 2022 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was Clash. Um, my high school friends and I used to sit on the outskirts of someone else's soccer practice to discuss our nerdy things. And I say someone else's soccer practice because unlike all the other Brazilian kids around me, I did not play soccer. But we knew that we could at least look cool pretending to know what was going on. And on one of those days, we started debating something that I think every teenage boy wonders about, which was, why do brains exist? There was a TED talk going on at the time. You might have seen it. It's quite old now, but it argues that brains evolved for the simple movement, for the simple reason of movement. Not to think, not to feel, but to move. And I hated that. Already at the time, I was reading a lot of neuroscience books. And to me, neuroscience has always been this so philosophical, such passionate science, human brains specifically. They adapt, they evolve, they make our whole personality. Why would movement, like kicking a dumb ball for 90 minutes, be the one thing that makes them special? And I think that summarizes a little bit of my growing up in Brazil. On one hand, I was lucky enough to have those nerdy friends who support me and a good education to know about neuroscience. But on the other hand, I had all the stereotypes of growing up in Brazil, the toxic family, the horrible masculinity standards, and the never-ending pressure to, break, to play soccer. But at some point, I think I realized that I was also very ambitious where I was and deeply, deeply bored with my hometown, which is a dangerous combination for a teenager. So when that same friend went abroad for a high school exchange program, I follow him to his advisor and ask, how can I do the same before college? At the time, I was 17 years old. My whole English vocabulary was 2000 lyrics, Linkin Park and Eminem. <laughs> And a bare minimum to play online video games. So I had to start studying for the weirdest test I've ever taken in my life, the SAT. On one hand, the algebra questions were things that I learned in sixth grade. On the other hand, they want me to know the meaning of words like sanctimonious, which if you don't know, it's just a fancy way to call someone uh, pretentious or self-righteous. The reason I know that is because I started gluing SAT word of the day's flashcards all over my bedroom and sanctimonious was standing on top of my bed, so I saw that every morning for a whole year. And I think it worked. Like many other international students, I apply all over the US. I didn't really know that the US had different cities or anything like that. Um, Cincinnati, Seattle, New York, all the same to me. 
and it's a little bit embarrassing to say, but I did not know that California was different in Florida until I got accepted into one of those. So I was in a plane heading to the University of South Florida, which is not in California. And Miley Cyrus was blasting, playing party in the USA because I was so ready to finally be here. I think that energy fell down real quick. As I arrived in Miami airport, I watched in horror someone eat a Wendy's burger at 7 a.m. <laughs> to this day, I've never eaten at Wendy's. It's not even a joke. And I headed to the crown jewel of the American empire, Starbucks. Do you know when there's a long line and they get the person with like a headset and an attitude to come fix it? No one in the line was happy, except for myself. I was completely doe-eyed, looking at everything, so excited to be there, up until the moment that the person asked what I wanted. I don't remember to this day what happened, not because it was a long time ago, but because I don't think that was a human language that I spoke. In the two seconds that it took, I went to all the five stages of grief for my comfortable life in Brazil. I panicked, I started sweating, I blanked, and I walked out of there completely terrified, but with a Frappuccino in hand. And that's all that mattered to me because I got the Frappuccino. And it's kind of how I approach my whole college career. I just ignore social norms and then blame it on my culture. <laughs> At some point, two months into my freshman year, I approached this professor because I had a question about a molecule. I just wanted to make sure that the molecule was correct. Not because of tests or research or anything, but because I wanted to get a tattoo of that molecule. I did not send an email. I did not schedule an appointment. I just showed up with a frappuccino in my hand and started asking about tattoos and chemistry. And somehow that worked. A week later, I was working in his lab, still broken English, a horrible Starbucks addiction, but a scientist uh, as a freshman in college. And that was amazing to me. And I continued to do research uh, throughout college and then in grad school. And at some point, I think I realized that I was too much of an extrovert to do the science that I was doing, that I needed to make the science sound cooler. So for instance, I could tell you that my PhD thesis was on long no-coding RNAs and the neurotoxicity involved in ethanol during development. Or I could tell you that I got baby mice drunk and watched them play with Legos. <laughs> I chose the latter and just continued to be this extroverted person. It was a weird beginning, uh, kind of embracing that side and being extroverted in science, but it also was the first time that I feel like I truly belong in science. Um, science has a horrible way of making you feel like an imposter, and that made me feel like I belong there. And that, like everything else, changed in 2020. Um, much like some of you maybe, I blanked for the first few months of the pandemic, and I woke up June 2020 with the massive protests that were breaking out across the country, in a hot summer day, not in Florida, but in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which apparently also has hot summer days. And I glanced what was probably like 200 cops or so in front of us. At the time, we had this unspoken agreement that non-black people would go to the front of the lines because of racism. So I never considered myself brave, more like reckless and with poor judgment skills. But I went to the front of the line N95 on because we still didn't get any vaccines at the time and the pandemic was raging on. Goggles because those rubber bullets will get you blind. And sweatpants and a t-shirt against body armors, shotguns with less than lethal ammunition, and water cannons. Um, 
I cannot emphasize how terrifying a water cannon is in front of you. And I think everyone was feeling the same way. So we're all in front, linking arms, and the guy next to me goes, what are you doing here? Aren't you like Mexican or something? And then it hit me. Um, a smoke grenade hit me on my ankle as we start running backwards from the police. And we ran for about 20 minutes down a bridge trying to run away from them and be safe again. And it also hit me that if I get arrested here, it's likely a deportation. It's likely a goodbye to everything that I built in the last 10 years. And it was a weird feeling. It was a feeling like I don't belong here. Um, all this time doing science, doing cutting edge research funded by the US government, and I still didn't feel right. Um, like the extrovert that I am, I just went back home, showered the pepper spray off of me and started thinking, what do I do now? And I reached out to someone who was doing amazing science at the time, but who also has this incredible political sensibility. And like the millennial, like the extroverted scientist that I am, I reached out over Twitter. I sent a DM that read something like, can we talk about like, doing science in 2020? She never replied, but I'm stubborn. So I sent an email. I think I finally started to learn the social norms. And she replied to the email. We set up a Zoom meeting and another and another. So for a whole year, we talked about research, about science, but also what it means to do science right now, uh, what it means to be doing science while the world burns. And I think I need to win some sort of achievement for like extroverted in science because I can finally say that I have a job at Columbia University because of Twitter. <laughs> it's an amazing job. I still don't know why brains exist, but I now do something called transgenerational trauma, um, which if you heard about it, you probably have it. So sorry, we're trying to fix it. But it also brought me to New York City, which is an incredible place to do this kind of research because maybe of all the places in the US, this is a city full of honorary immigrants, full of people who don't feel like they belong, but maybe because we all feel a little bit weird here, we all belong. And it's wild to me, actually, two days from now, I'm gonna complete 10 years of living in the US and the journey and all the things that I learned from being nervous about ordering coffee to here, I now order online ahead of time like everyone else. <laughs> but I think I also finally am starting to learn to feel comfortable, to feel like I belong here, not just as a scientist, not just as an extroverted scientist, but as an immigrant scientist, even though I still don't play soccer. That was Tiago Arzua. Born and raised in Brazil, Tiago is now a postdoc at Columbia University. There, he studies how trauma can pass through multiple generations. Outside the lab, he helped create Black in Neuro. It's a nonprofit organization aiming to diversify the neurosciences by celebrating and empowering Black scholars. The Story Collider is so grateful to Pardeep and Tiago for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, 
along with me, managing producer Misha Gayaski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, and with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were both from shows produced by Christine Gentry and Fola Alusanya. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with stories about body image. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.